The Sickle Cell Consortium is excited to partner with Agios and Cheat Codes to bring important information on sickle cell as part of our citizen scientist Unpacking the Science of Sickle Cell initiative. To learn more about the Sickle Cell Consortium, visit www.sicklecellconsortium.org. Join us as a partner in the cause to ensure the voice of the sickle cell patient and caregiver are at the center of education, research, advocacy, legislation, and policy. Visit www.sicklecellconsortium.org backslash become a partner, and we look forward to working with you. All right, Warriors, welcome back to another session of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Today, we are back with another episode in the series Best Of. This time, we're going to be breaking down the conference called FSCDR. Now, up front, I want to say thank you to our sponsors, Agios Pharmaceuticals, for sponsoring this series in collaboration with the Sickle Cell Consortium. I'm so proud of what we were able to do for the American Society of Hematology Conference in 2020 with the help of Dr. Lakia Bailey, who's the director of the Sickle Cell Consortium. I want to welcome Dr. Bailey back for this episode. Dr. Bailey, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Z. I'm glad to be here. Tell, tell the warriors out there, if there's a warrior out there who for some odd reason may not know who Dr. Lakia Bailey is, why don't you let them know? Who's Dr. Lakia Bailey? All right. I am the executive director of the Sickle Cell Community Consortium. I have uh, doctorates in molecular hematology and regenerative medicine, so I'm a bit of a nerd. I love the research and the science aspect of all things, particularly sickle cell. And I am an adult living with sickle cell disease. And so I wear multiple hats that allows me to be participate in things like this as patient, as scientists and as community experts. Amazing, amazing. Now, Dr. Bailey, just like we did in this last episode, I brought my crew and you brought your crew. Why don't you introduce us to your crew first? Oh, absolutely. So with me is Elle Cole. L is um, the founder and director of Cleverly Changing, and she is a caregiver, raising individual children with chronic illness. One of them has sickle cell disease. Thank you so much for being with us, Elle. Thank you. It's an honor. Uh, we also have Dominique Goodson. Dominique Goodson is a warrior living with sickle cell. She is the senior project manager with the Sickle Cell Consortium, and she also is our administrator and dean of Warrior University. Amazing, amazing. Well, th- thank you, thank you all for being here. This obviously, um, this the entire premise of Cheat Codes was all related to the warriors. I mean, having the warriors on this platform is what this is all about. So I'm so, so happy we're able to do this. Now, let me introduce you, Dr. Bailey, if I have your permission to my crew for a moment here. So of course, I'm Amar Zaidi, Dr. Z, pediatric hematologist at the Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit. And you know my partner in crime, Dr. Mike Callahan. Dr. C, you with us? Hello. I'm with you, Dr. Z. Caffeine levels are good? Close enough. All right. Okay. So we brought on a couple experts here. So the first person that I invited as part of my crew was Dr. Drew Campbell. Now, as you guys know, Dr. Drew Campbell was the chair of the planning committee of this meeting this year. He was a scientific chair. Um, So heavily involved in the planning of FSCDR. Now, Dr. Drew Campbell just messaged me and said he's running just a little bit 
late. He's going to be jumping on just shortly. But in the interim, we've invited two other experts in sickle cell disease. And I mean experts in sickle cell disease. Individuals who were at the FSCDR conference, individuals who were active in the discussion around new science, around what we've learned about sickle cell disease in the last year. I'm going to go ahead and introduce Dr. Katerina Minitti first, Cheat Codes alumni. Welcome back, Dr. Katerina Minitti from Brooklyn. Hi, Amar. Nice to be back here. Love the cheat codes and what you do for the sickle cell community. Thanks for being back, Dr. Minetti. And then we have Dr. Santosh. We have Dr. Santosh Saraf, who is from Chicago, University of Illinois, Chicago, to be more specific, who was part of a, I think, moderated, actually, the panel on end organ damage and sickle cell disease at the foundation meeting. Dr. Saraf, we are so, so pleased that you are here with us to share your insights. Hi, Amar. Thanks so much for uh, the invitation. I'm excited to be a part of this. Amazing. Well, Dr. Callahan, how do you feel about jumping right into this? Let's do it. All right. And just for the warriors out there that are keeping score, the way that we run these sessions is we have the experts who um, sort of go through the content. And then we have the caregivers, the warriors who are on the panel sort of talk to them about it and and really hold them accountable for what they're saying and, and sort of challenge them on, on breaking down the science a little bit more granularly. That's what we're going to try to emulate again this time around. So we're going to, you know, we're going to kick this off by starting with Dr. Minitti. Dr. Minitti was part of a panel called uh, COVID-19 and sickle cell disease. And for those of you who may not be aware, Dr. Minitti is quite an expert, actually, in COVID-19 and sickle cell disease. She um, took care of, of many patients with COVID-19 and sickle cell disease. She's published a multi-center sort of um, report on what happened to COVID-19 infected sickle cell disease patients. So we're, we're really happy to hear a little bit of your perspective from the foundation meeting. Dr. Minitti, can you talk us through a little bit about what was discussed at that panel, what you talked about um, and things of that sort? Yes, of course. And of course, Amar is uh, very modest. He also was the big part of the uh, uh, report that we published this year on a sickle cell and uh, patients infected with COVID-19. So Amar and I are a very good team and, uh, and I am proud actually to be part of this team. What we discussed at this session was divided in three parts. The, pre the first part had to do just with COVID-19 infection in general and not specific to the sickle cell community. And that was very, very interesting, very much in depth. There was a lot of science. It was really very informative. What my job was to describe specifically how COVID-19 infections related to adults with sickle cell disease. And what I reported on was our experience and the experience around the world. In, in few words, the experience can be summarized as such. Uh, patients with sickle cell disease uh, uh, do get infected with uh, COVID-19 uh, um, uh, virus at uh, about, uh, I would say, the same rate as the general population. But when they get infected, if they have pre-existing illnesses, pre-existing organ damage, such as kidney disease, heart disease, liver disease, they tend to get sicker than patients that don't have sickle cell disease. The good news though, and I really wanna report here on some good news, 
is that uh, the patient population responded beautifully to our effort to inform them about the risk, inform them on what to do if they got infected, and uh, taking their medications while they were at home. And this year, we have seen a dramatic drop in the incidence of COVID-19 infections. So I don't, I wanna be optimistic. I also really wanna say this, that everybody that has gotten the vaccine, and I know many of my patients that have gotten the vaccine, have had no complications from it. So this is something that I made sure to, uh, to report, so to encourage the community, even the few that are still scared, that it's okay, you can get the vaccine. I, I really really have not had one single adverse event. Uh, the other thing though that I, uh, I really think is important uh, to mention is that the immune system of patients with sickle cell disease is weaker. So we do have to be a bit more cautious. And so uh, I, I do think that we are not out of the woods and it's important to continue some precautions, you know, moving, uh, moving forward. One small uh, problem that I noticed, though, over the past six months is that patients that were affected by COVID-19 seem to have it had a little bit rougher, like they had more vasoclusive pain crisis. Some of them had some lingering side effects. So what I advise the patient is that if you have had COVID-19 infection, please go back to your doctors so that they can check uh, your heart, your liver, and make sure that everything is back to um, baseline. But expect some bumpy road, uh, you know, for the few months after the infection. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, well Warrior Panel, what do you guys think? I think it's incredibly exciting. Uh, it's really great news to hear that this data is out there regarding the vaccine and this information is there. And it's incredibly important to share this with our community. I think one of the things is that we have to provide the information and allow our community to make an informed decision. And the best way to do that is to be straightforward with the education, straightforward with the information. Here is what's out there. And, and not assume that the community won't understand because we do. Not assume that we don't want this information because we do and then let us come to an informed decision. So thank you so much for the work you're doing in this. Yeah, no, I think this is very important and that, that what you said, to be informed. And, uh, um, and that's really um, our role, I think, is to inform and work with you warriors. And I have to say, I feel I'm a warrior too. And uh, I, throughout my career, I have uh, fought hard um, for patients with sickle cell disease, children, adults, all of them. And so I, I really want to be part of this tribe as a warrior myself. Honorary warrior status. I like it. <laughs> now, now, Dr. Minetti is talking about COVID-19 right now, but but her, her, her really her, a lot of her work has been on leg ulcers, which is a part of the warrior journey that um, often gets overlooked, often doesn't get talked about, often doesn't get the attention it, it really needs to. So um, I can vouch for her if you guys are looking for letters of reference. <laughs> and, and if we're going to war, I want her in my foxhole. So. That's true. 
Miss L, I'm Miss L. I'm so curious though to to hear your perspective as a caregiver. I mean, when if you're hearing Doctor Minetti tell you this stuff, is this hitting you like okay, I'm taking a breath, I'm I'm taking a sigh of relief here, or is this like, how does this change your dynamic as a caregiver? For me, I was immediately thinking about how the vaccine has just opened up for those who are 12 and older. And I think it's great news that the vaccine is promising so far for those who are adults and they're not seeing additional complications from taking the vaccine. And I think that makes parents especially more at ease because we want our kids to go back to school. We want them to you know, be able to spend time with their friends, to engage more with others because that's a part of growing up. And it sounds like the vaccine is able to put people more at ease so that they can get back to regular life. Um, but is there any data on children with sickle cell and um, the COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, I mean, I, unfortunately, I don't think there is hard data, you know, Al, uh, it's too early. The only thing I can say is that we talk a lot among us sickle cell doctors, and I have talked to many of my friends at the children's, uh, you know, in Montefiore and in other children's hospital, and they have expressed that so far, you know, they don't see any any problems with the vaccine. And we do know that children get a lot of vaccines. You know, I have children myself, and I know <laughs> that, that they all have gotten tons of vaccines, and most of the time, you know, nothing happens. So I think it's too early uh, to know uh, whether or not they will have uh, complications. I think the most important thing also is to find out how effective they are. And they do seem to be very effective. So we have to balance, of course, both effectiveness and and risk. I'm wondering, sometimes some of the um, data that we're hearing is telling people, if you've gotten the vaccine, you don't have to wear a mask. And that kind of concerns me as a parent of a child, you know, with sickle cell disease. I want my child, even if they are getting vaccinated to still wear a mask. So do you have any thoughts on what the new CDC recommendations are and how that really affects our community? Yeah, this is uh, a question that uh, it's it's so important and uh, I have thought a lot about it. And uh, I don't know how the others feel uh, about it because uh, it, there is no real strong data that you uh, have to wear the mask after you're vaccinated, you know, theoretically, you're not supposed to be spreading, you know, as much. But um, the CDC has come out with these recommendations after long, uh, you know, consideration of its implication. Me personally, I, at this time, I think it's an individual choice. And I do think that if one feels uncomfortable, I think it's okay to wear the mask. Why not? And especially in closed spaces. One thing that I want to say during the COVID session that really was uh, very important, this uh, expert in viruses, this COVID-19 expert that talked before me, said that the rate of infection is 20 times higher in a confined space than outdoors. 
outdoor. It basically confirmed what we all have been thinking that outdoor it's okay. And it was really nice for me to hear him say that. You know, he actually has data that shows that indoor, I mean, outdoor, the infections rate is way less. So I think at least for that, uh, we can feel more comfortable, you know, outdoor. I, I would I love this um, this discussion so far. I want to add one layer to it. You know, it, could you could you give us a little bit of a summary on some of the cardiopulmonary complications that Dr. Liz Klings described? Are, is there anything of note that stuck out to you that you think warriors should take as like a take home sort of moral of the story? Well, you know, Liz uh, t- talked about some long-term complications of patients that have had the, you know, COVID-19 infection. And unfortunately, I too have had uh, two patients that, um, I'm sorry to say, passed away several months after having COVID-19 with uh, a liver failure. Um, one cannot be sure 100% that the COVID was related to it, but certainly it could have been. The thing, the take-home message is that all of these patients had pre-existing severe disease. So the COVID-19 was like a catalytic that made the, a problem that was already there worse. So as usually in sickle cell, prevention is the word of the day. So individual that came in without, you know, the, the liver disease or the cardiopulmonary disease did not have these problems. So uh, again, it's preventive prevention, what I preach all the time, and, and, and I think it's the right, uh, you know, uh, strategy. So my word of uh, advice is always the same and this try not to get sick in the first place, like take your medication, especially, you know, iron overload, uh, you know, that causes damage to the liver, you know, evidence of cardiac disease, that is something that predisposes to long-term complication from COVID-19. Also, these patients were older, okay? So I don't want you to think that we're talking about children. Um, there was a, a presentation from a pediatrician from Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And even though they presented several cases in which uh, children got sick, none of the children died. They experienced zero deaths. And in my review of sickle cell disease and COVID-19 around the world, I would say 99% of the patients were not children. So uh, as far as our children, I think we are okay. That's great news. Yeah. So I know I, I I am optimistic. And, you know, I always say, I have to be optimistic <laughs> to do what I do because I see every day, you know, the complications in, of this disease and I'm always optimistic and we can do it. Uh, Dr. Benetti, initially we were spreading the uh, message that it was incredibly important to wear masks, not just to protect ourselves, but to protect each other and to protect others And as part of a population with decreased immune response and with that is immunocompromised, the message is now if you are vaccinated and you have protected yourself, stop wearing a mask. 
But I wonder how does that fit in with the language of you wear a mask to protect others? So the fact that you're vaccinated does not protect the immune compromised around you, the total organ transplant people around you. And yet we're saying almost as an incentive, go get vaccinated and take your mask off. But this does does nothing for all of those that remain in danger. And I'm having difficulty merging those two ideas. I can tell you, you know, Dr. Bailey, that this mask business has been a, a very confusing message from the beginning. I was part of this committee with Dr. Z called MARAC, which is Medical Advisory Committee to the Sickle Cell Association of America. And I remember distinctly when the CDC wasn't even saying to wear a mask. And we had to write these messages every week. Uh, we were drafting a message for patients and providers. I cannot tell you how many hours we spent in trying to write that email. Do wear mask. Don't wear mask. Mask yes, mask no. So I totally agree with you. The message is very confusing because the mask are supposed to protect others from us. So the mask protects um, others around us. And you are right. Um, if there is even a small chance that a person who is vaccinated can transmit the vaccine, it is my opinion that it would be prudent to keep the mask on in the presence of patients that or people that are immune compromised. But as I said, I'm not the CDC <laughs> and I don't have the wealth of information that they have. Uh, but because I care about uh, uh, the others and I know that patients with sickle cell are immune compromised, I would say in an indoor space, maybe we should be a little more prudent. I don't know, Dr. Z, what do you think? You know, we're going to have to have some common sense. That's what I'm trying to say, just common yeah. sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, my, I'm still wearing a mask. Right. Um, and I, I don't have. Yeah. And I don't have I'm vaccinated. My family's vaccinated. My friends are vaccinated. I'm still out there wearing a mask because honestly, uh, mostly because I think it sets a good precedent. I, I think it, it shows that, you know, it's, it's, it's OK to do so. Right. It's not it's fine. Like we don't know. It's OK to say we don't know. Right. As physicians, we can say that. Right. That's part of the scientific process is we actually don't know the answer here. We're just guessing. And um, maybe this is safe. But. Who knows, right, in the long run? So I, I guess I don't have a good answer. I'm interested to hear from Dr. Saroff and Dr. Callahan on that, though. Yeah, I was talking to somebody earlier today, and, you know, we dislike ma the masks. You know, sometimes it can feel hard to breathe. It's uncomfortable. But I dislike COVID even more, and I dislike the problems of COVID even more. And, you know, kind of having a mask, helping contain the COVID virus, letting this kind of abate and get better so that, we don't have variants or other problems arise and we can kind of get past this COVID, I think is really essential. Yeah, I, I think um, it's it, the mask has been really interesting. I mean, we've had no flu this year. We've had no RSV this year. Um, there's been some benefits to it. And I, I think, you know, there's, there's clearly some benefits there. I, I think in terms of COVID, CB, CDC was making a compromise. They want people to get vaccinated. And so they wanted somebody to get something out of getting vaccinated. So if you had to continue to shelter in place and wear a mask, then people would say, why get vaccinated? So I, I get what they did. I think too, a lot of it depends on the number of cases in your area. So if, if there's zero COVID cases, then wearing a mask doesn't protect us from COVID. 
Um, the numbers have been going down tremendously. We still have some cases in Michigan. I think the jury's out. Last summer, the numbers went down tremendously, and then they came back up. And there's a lot of things we don't know about how long this immunity lasts. Hopefully, it's for a very long time, but we don't know. I think it, at this point is a personal choice. I mean, I, I think uh, if you feel more comfortable wearing a mask, by all means, wear a mask. Should we all have to wear masks? I, you know, I, I think the cases are getting low enough that we're not preventing a lot of COVID with them anymore. And I think it's a reasonable, a reasonable trade-off and a personal choice at this point. Dr. Manetti, I have a question. Um, so I'm a warrior. I had COVID uh, um, in January. And so one of the things uh, with the vaccine that came up that a lot of um, warrior patients have asked because they're very hesitant about getting the vaccine because of, because of the past, because they're saying it was done way too fast. I've heard really crazy things. That's just the government trying to put a chip in us. Just, just different things. But one of the most important things that most warriors keep stating is that, well, if we get the vaccine, we could still catch COVID and potentially die. There's no guarantee. And when I try to explain to them uh, that a vaccine isn't necessarily a cure, just like if you get the uh, flu vaccine, you still have the potential to get the flu, but it's just less uh, severe as it would have been. So how would you go about telling patients or so that they understood that getting the vaccine, um, yes, you can still catch COVID, but your your symptoms will be less severe than what it is. Just the way you said it. I think you said it very well. Uh, I think that's exactly true. The uh, vaccine uh, protects almost for sure against having a serious infection. And you can still catch it in very rare cases. I mean, I think uh, I was reading some statistics. Uh, the percentage of patients that actually get COVID after a vaccination is not very high. It's really, really small, considering that, I don't know, 190 million doses that have been given of the vaccine, there have been very few cases of COVID after the vaccine, and none of them fatal. But I agree with you. Some patients are hesitant. And it's interesting, Dominique, that you said some patients say that it was developed too fast. I hear this a lot, that they are concerned that it was too quick and it was too fast. And that's why it cannot be uh, uh, correct. Something must be wrong with it. But in my experience, and maybe this is uh, uh, peculiar to my practice, uh, the vast majority of patients has been eager to get it. They have been asking me to get it. So um, I have seen few that are not sure, but uh, the overwhelming majority has been very uh, proactive, actually, in getting the vaccination. Uh, I'm curious to hear from the other physicians, you know, did you have seen you know, this comes up. This comes up. This comes up in our clinic a little bit. The vaccine was developed too fast, right? That's I hear that from warriors sometimes. So I, I, what I say back to them is, look, if tomorrow morning we woke up and everybody on the planet suddenly had sickle cell disease, guess how quickly we would make progress in sickle cell disease from a research standpoint? When suddenly 
it affects the entire world and every country and every person, right? Then suddenly resources start flowing in. And when resources start flowing in, progress happens, right? That's how I explain it to them. And this is what happened with COVID. I mean, nobody was immune from it. Everybody could have been affected. And that's why we saw progress at the pace that we saw it. And that seems to that seems to strike a chord with some of the warriors that I talk to. And, you know, I think it's incredibly important to point out this vaccine wasn't rushed. It was prioritized. And that's the difference. When something becomes prioritized by so many all at once, things will inevitably move quicker. And I think that's part of the education that has to go out, that it was prioritized. And so, of course, it happened at a much faster pace. And we want it to happen at that rate. One thing that I hear a lot is that we don't know the long-term effects of this. And I have to say, we have a lot of vaccines, and none of them have long-term effects. Some of them have bad side effects, but they almost always happen right after you get it. So there's not vaccines that have, you know, 10 years down the road. It's like, oh, because I got that vaccine. So I'm less concerned about that. I think it's also really important to point out that uh, it's not the first time that this has happened. We've had mass rollouts of vaccines before. My parents' entire generation was vaccinated for smallpox in school. And they all have the scar on their arm to show it. I think people need to be reminded that this is not the first time this has happened. Um, Please go ahead, Elle. I was just going to say, in talking to other people, I've often found assurance knowing that even though the vaccine seems new to us, just really the terminology, the process of making the vaccine and the technology is not new. So in essence, it's not new. So we really shouldn't... um, We shouldn't like frame our mind around that. We should say the science has been tested and tried for a long time. And that's the process that we can trust. Beautifully said, beautifully said. And I want to close on that because that is that is just phenomenal. You um, you really summarize that beautifully. Thank you for that, Al. The Sickle Cell Consortium will be hosting its 8th annual Sickle Cell Disease Patient and Family Educational Symposium on August 26th through the 29th, 2021. This convention is the only national patient-designed, organized, and hosted meeting of its type created specifically to address the needs of sickle cell patients and caregivers. The symposium brings together patient warriors, caregivers, advocates, healthcare providers, and supporters to empower, encourage, and educate each other as we define what it is to live sickle strong. Visit www.sicklecellconsortiumconvention.org for more information. Again, that's www.sicklecellconsortiumconvention.org. What I want to do, though, is we had, since I've told you guys that he was going to join us, uh, you know, like the like the injured basketball star coming back during during the you know the timeout. Dr. Drew Campbell has joined us. So, Dr. Drew, I'm gonna really quickly tell you who we've got in the room. We've got you know most of these people. So we've got Dr. Lakia Bailey. We've got Miss L. We've got Miss Dominique. You've got you know you know Katarina and Santosh, and then of course me and Dr. C. Dr. Drew, for the warriors out there that may not know who Dr. Drew Campbell is, can you let us know why you are here today? What is going on? Why did Dr. Z ask you to be here? Because I'm a sickle cell physician in Washington, D.C. that works at Children's National. That's all. And you had a big part in a meeting called the FSCDR meeting. What was your role? I was the uh, scientific chair of the meeting. 
Well, hats off to you for a very successful meeting, first of all. Thank you. Now, what we're going to do is we, we, we just finished up our COVID-19 and sickle cell discussion, and I'm going to now pass the baton to Dr. Saraf. And, you know, I think this is going to be a really, um, a really good discussion. Dr. Saraf was, um, Dr. Saraf is by all, uh, by any measure, an expert in, um, you know, kidney function, sickle cell disease, kidney disease, uh, as it pertains to warriors. And he chaired the session on end organ dysfunction. Now tell us, Dr. Drew, a little bit, for, why don't you tell us when the planning committee's talking about this session, they land on Dr. Saraf. Tell us what your vision was for this session. <laughs> well, it was a committee. I will say with um, Dr. Liz Klings from Washington University and Dr. Wally Smith from VCU, with I think everyone really knows. And it was actually the brainchild of Dr. Wally Smith because he, he thought about the kidney. You know, sometimes it's one of the forgotten organs, right? We always talk about the heart and the lungs, the brain. But the kidneys are very, very important organs. And it's, you know, disproportionately affected in patients with sickle cell disease. So when we're thinking about in-organ damage, Dr. Saraf is one of the first individuals we thought about in, in terms of um, speaking about the kidneys. He's done some research um, at UIC and also uh, has written well, uh, has written over, you know, number of publications addressing in-organ damage in sickle cell disease, but more importantly, the kidneys. And uh, so we thought the kidney was a very important organ at the time. So we thought we should talk about it a little bit more. I'm very happy you picked Dr. Saraf. And Dr. Saraf, I'm so glad you're with us. So before we hop in, Dr. Saraf, give me one second to just point out, um, we've given the initialism several times, but for those of you listening, FSCDR is the Foundation for Sickle Cell Disease Research. And uh, this is the annual meeting that they host for sickle cell research and all things sickle cell related. It's like the 15th, 15th symposium, but 15th annual symposium, but the 44th. And it used to be combined with the, the uh, actual NIH uh, Cooperative Sickle Cell Disease Group uh, Sickle Cell Centers. And they would come together every year for a meeting and the FSCDR became a part of that. And then once the sickle cell centers closed, the FSCDR became the sole organization in promoting um, this meeting every year. It's a scientific research meeting every year. I just wanted to add that. Beautiful. Sorry. Well, Dr. Saraf, you had a beautiful educational session and then you had a wonderful panel afterwards. I'd love for you to give us a high level overview of sort of the, the high points, take home messages and um, really the meaningful parts of that session that you think warriors really should be tuned into. Yeah, again, thanks to the organizers for allowing us to focus on the kidneys. And we often get asked as hematologists, why do we care about the kidney? What's so important about these organs? And they're often kind of under uh, undervalued. You know, we think that they make the urine and that's all they really do. They're these kidney-sized organs that just kind of sit in the back. But the kidneys are really one of the kind of underrated organs. You know, they have a lot of important functions, including filtering the blood to make sure that the toxins are, are removed. But they're also important for making sure that we make enough red blood cells. And so that's really important in sickle cell disease because we don't want the anemia to worsen. They're also really important in maintaining bone health, also a big problem in sickle cell disease because we get a lot of bony vaso-occlusive crises. And so the vitamin D that the kidneys are responsible for may be important. 
Very importantly, they're important for making sure that we don't get dehydrated. And so if we get dehydrated, we get more sickling and basal occlusion. So the kidneys have lots of these different roles. They, they regulate blood pressure, all these things behind the scene that the kidneys are doing that are really essential. And um, if they get damaged, they can make the, the, the body not work as well. And this is especially vital in people with sickle cell disease. So I was, I was really happy to be able to kind of highlight that um, at this meeting. Um, we had three different sessions. One was an introduction that kind of talked about the overview of how often are the kidneys damaged, um, how or why are the kidneys damaged, and then Dr. Vimal Darabal went into um, talking about, you know, when should we start screening for kidney disease, how should we be screening for kidney disease, when should we get a kidney expert involved, and then what are some of the treatments that are available right now, uh, kind of highlighting that we do really need to focus a lot on kidney disease and develop new therapies. And then Dr. De Jeff Lappensberger from the University of Alabama, uh, also uh, very well published, uh, both of them are, um, uh, discussed how are the kidneys affected in childhood. And it's really important because the damage that's happening to the kidneys happens very early and it slowly can build up. And so it's really important to monitor for it, uh, try to do some things that can help protect the kidney, and then um, knowing when to kind of have the, the kidney specialist involved. Tell, tell me a little bit, give me an understanding, L. Let's start with you and Dominique. Give, give me an understanding on how often do you guys think about the kidney? I mean, as a caregiver for a sickle cell patient, as a sickle cell warrior, how often do you guys actually like, how, when does when does this hit you? Does it ever hit you? Never. I, speaking, not gonna lie, speaking as a warrior, um, I've never thought about my kidneys. I've never thought about my gallbladder. I guess I thought about uh, my lungs, heart, brain, but I always, those are like the important things or, or my spleen. And well, I mean, every, all of our body parts are important. Uh, all of our organs are important, but like the main ones that either my uh, general practitioner or, or hematologist will, um, will say like, you have to get these uh, checked out. I've never thought, oh, I need to maybe get tests done to do my kidneys. I just always trust that my hematologist is doing what he or she needs to be doing. And if something's wrong, she will inform me like, hey, we need to run more tests. But no, no, I, I've never thought about uh, my kidneys. Careful, Dominique. The kidney people <laughs> they, are going they to, might have to say that. I didn't Not say important. it was important. I just said I never thought about it. Now, the kidney people, if you want to come for me, just bring some educational books so I can read up on it with sickle cell and know about it. it. But Dominique, didn't your doctor ask you for a urine sample when you came when you went to clinic? My doctor gets a urine sample every time I go to the doctor. So somebody's thinking about your kidneys. I just thought she wanted to know if I was pregnant or not. <laughs> I, <laughs> like I didn't, or or if I had like a urinary tract infection because I had a fever that they couldn't find out where it was coming from. But I never thought it was. Oh, we're checking your kidneys because they never literally say that. Like we need a urine sample because we're we're checking this for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. They just said, we need a urine sample. It would be great as doctors if you do tell the patients what these tests, what okay, I'm ordering this, and this is what I'm ordering, and this is why I'm ordering it for, and this is to check X, Y, and Z. 
Because I just great assume, advice. Great advice. Thank I just assumed she wanted me to know if I was pregnant or had it. Yeah. Yeah. Now we'll incorporate that. That's a great suggestion to be. Just as patients will know. Miss L, what about you as a caregiver? Does that does it register on a parent's radar? That my well, kids' kidneys might be getting affected. It definitely registers on my radar all the time. And mainly because I know that sometimes people with sickle cell trait can have kidney complications. And because we're so big on telling sickle cell patients to hydrate and also sickle cell patients to hydrate a lot, I knew that um, the kidney filtered, um, you know, it was important for hydration. It filters the blood. It helps with red blood cells. And all of these things are very central to sickle cell. And so for me, you know, it is something that's kind of in the back of my mind um, as a parent, but I don't know, you know, I will say just full disclosure, I do write books about sickle cell. And so that may be why I'm so keen on the different complications and different treatments, but it is something that um, concerns me. And so I'm always trying to push fluids as much as possible. And I I really hate to say it. I sometimes do go into my child's bathroom just to see how how the urine is looking to check. And that may be a bit obsessive, but it is something that concerns me. And so I kind of have to um, just ask more questions. And, you know, like Dr. Saraf um, mentioned, you know, we do care about prevention. And so I'm curious to know, you know, while children are young, what are some things other than just, you know, pushing the fluids um, that we can do to help them have better kidney health? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad to hear that, uh, Dominique, your, your physician checks the urine because that's something that's not always checked. And, and looking at the urine and looking at something called microalbumin is a really great screening test that can identify people that are having the earlier uh, kidney damage can tell us to start um, controlling the blood pressure more aggressively and avoid certain medicines like um, ibuprofen or naproxen or other medicines that may stress the kidney uh, more than uh, it needs to be stressed. So uh, checking the urine is, is one of the, the most important early steps, especially in early childhood. Are there some preventative tips that you can give, um, like Elle was asking, and things that we can tell other warriors that they can be doing now? to protect kidney health? Yeah, uh, it, that's really, really essential. Um, so staying very well hydrated is the most important thing. Making sure that you're drinking plenty of water, avoiding too much caffeinated beverages such as uh, sodas and, and too much coffee or tea uh, is important. Also kind of a general health kind of things. These are things that um, have been seen not in as much sickle cell disease, but in kind of the general population. Uh, but eating fruits that are high, uh, eating food such as fruits and vegetables, um, it can actually regulate your acid-base balance and it can actually help prevent your blood from being too acidic. So trying to cut back more on the meats and trying to increase your fruit and vegetable intake actually helps kind of reduce the acidity in your blood and may actually be also very important for helping your, uh, your kidneys function better. Also, uh, low salt diets, monitoring the blood pressure very closely, trying to keep that top number in the 120s or lower and the bottom number below 80 is really important. Um, and then uh, some of the things that we should be doing on our end, you know, checking the urine for the protein, checking the blood to monitor the kidney numbers and, and some of the electrolytes, but also checking to make sure the vitamin D levels are good because that, that may also be really important for bone health and also for other organ health. 
So all things that the kidneys are responsible for, kind of monitoring those. That's fantastic. That's good stuff. Thank you. So I, you know, I, um, I, I was going to open with Dr. Drew and have him give us an overview of the meeting. But, but now that you're with us here, Drew, I'd love to get a little bit from you as far as some of the highlights beyond the COVID-19 and sickle cell session, beyond the end organ uh, panel discussion. Can you talk us through some of the high points of the meeting that, that if you wanted to write down, if you were going to give warriors, you know, five, six take-home messages what would those look like? I mean, what should they know about what happened at FSCDR this year? I think, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone for joining. I know um, it was Memorial Day weekend, so I think we recognize that it's a challenge for many participants. So uh, Dr. Manidi, Dr. Saraf, uh, Dr. Zaidi, everyone who participated were grateful. Um, second point I would say is, you know, in terms of the meeting um, I think I have about three or four themes. One is the global session I thought was very, very fascinating. Um, and I think it taught me that sickle cell disease treatments and approaches are different in different settings. In Congo, in Brazil, they use lower doses of hydroxyurea, for example. And we're not saying, warriors, you should do this, but I'm just going to be transparent. Uh, we, of course, uh, because of limited resources, what, what many countries are doing are using lower doses of hydroxyurea, up to like 20 milligrams per kilo. Usually here in the U.S., many of us will push to 30 milligrams per kilo per body weight, right? What we're, what we're finding out is even at the lower doses of hydroxyurea, there's clinical benefit. And there are some people who believe that at the lower doses, um, you get anti-inflammation, um, anti-stickiness or adhesion benefits. So they have seen clinically we call significance, meaning that it doesn't happen by chance alone. It's due to the medication that um, in Brazil and in the Congo, they actually can get. And also in the SPIN trial, uh, trial in Nigeria, lower doses of hydroxyurea can be effective in preventing hospitalizations and pain crisis episodes. So that's one theme. I think we heard this at ASH, we've heard this, but in this meeting, I think we definitely heard that. Secondly, curative therapies. I think um, the curative therapies session, I would say um, there are different ways to cure. We have to take things slow. So when we have something like gene therapy, that's new. We have to thoroughly investigate um, the causes. And then what we're starting to find out is, you know, sickle cell disease in general, we need to know, you know, sickle cell in general in the bone marrow. We need to learn more about that. You know, what does it mean to have sickle cell in the bone marrow? Uh, how, how does sickle cell affect the bone marrow uh, in the child versus the adults? And can that have an effect on your ability to be cured? Also, being transplanted as a child versus adult, I think we're starting to find out if you get transplanted younger, you're less likely to have complications. I think we already know that. That's something that I learned. Also, having a haplo, which is a half-match transplant, is possible. We found that from Dr. Kasim in not only adults, but also pediatrics. And during that whole transplant um, discussion, um, here at Children's National, Dr. Chuck Nickel 
we we're using um, I say no chemo, but you know minimal chemo for children with sickle cell disease. If you have a matched sibling, that can work. You don't need uh, you don't need bisulfan or cytoxin. These are heavy duty chemotherapy agents, um, just like uh, Dr. Saras team at UIC. Very similar approaches. Not using heavy duty chemotherapy that can can cure children. So the theme is you can cure kids probably with less side effects, which makes sense, right? As you get older, the options become harder. But Dr. Kasim has shown that you can use. A haplotransplant, ha, you know, a, a parent that can be a trans. So that is even possible. So I think that was encouraging data from that trial. I think moving into the genomics, um, just one of the points I want to make, Dr. Vivian Sheen, excellent um, overall presentation, is that sickle cell disease, every patient's different. And sometimes we try to find genes that can affect one patient versus the other. Like for example, if you have a stroke, you think, oh, this gene is associated with a stroke. If you see it in sickle cell disease, it's hard to find genes that can link a, you know, a patient to a stroke versus someone who doesn't have a stroke. So what I learned in the genomics session is sickle cell disease have so many reasons why one patient has a stroke and another patient doesn't. One patient have more pain crisis versus others. Um, so we have a long way to go to understand in our DNAs why patients vary from one patient to the other. But progress is being made through, we call it, natural history-like studies. The last point I would say is uh, therapeutics and investigation of drug session. Um, I'm excited about the new, you know, the significant number of new therapeutic studies that are coming out. Not only gene therapy, different types of gene therapy, for example, we heard, I mean, there's one in the poster where, um, in the presentation, um, having low doses of, I mean, having gene therapy to have a target of fetal hemoglobin, usually we say 20%, on a low end, right, just to get, to just to have sickle cell disease, um, have disease-modifying characteristics through gene therapy at a lower amount of hydroxy, I mean, lower amount of fetal hemoglobin, but with less amount of chemo, right, and that form of transplant um, that Aravant uh, from Cincinnati showed us that can be actually um, also replicated in places like Jamaica or Brazil or Nigeria because you don't need a lot of chemotherapy for that form of gene therapy, right? So you don't have as much side effects and infection side effects. And then, um, but for the other forms of uh, treatments, I mean, we're very excited about Forma, Agios, of course, UBT, new products, Novartis, Imara, all these new pharmaceutical companies that are really adding more and more treatment options. So I would say more disease-modifying therapies that we can use. It's beautiful. I mean, and it's true, it's true to the motto, right? Changing the conversation and reshaping the future. So out of what Drew just, out of what Dr. Drew just told us, Dr. Bailey, is there anything that stands out to you as, as um, sort of something that caught your attention? Is there something there that you'd like to see more about? You know, I think for me, the biggest thing here is making sure that our patient community has access to this information. What's out there? What does it mean? How does it work? Um, modifying and, well, not modifying, but managing expectations. 
what can I truly expect from this, this, and this? What is the difference between reduced intensity and full intensity preparatory regimens? Um, what's the deal with uh, Bluebird Bio and the announcement that people may or may not have developed cancer from a vector, or maybe it was the, what is happening if we're saying that these treatments are available? For me, the biggest part is making sure that we express and explain the biggest part of informed consent is to first be informed. And the only way we can do that is to start to break these things down. Because of everything that you named, I don't know how we can expect any patient or caregiver to truly be informed enough to provide fully knowledgeable consent about these subject matters that took probably all of us on this call several years to study before we were, um, you know, able to say, I understand this and I understand that. And to me, that's the biggest part of this, because I think all of this is incredibly exciting. It's really exploding and all of the options is there for us. But what does it actually mean? How can I access it? And should I? What will it mean for me and my family? Uh, and that's the, the side of this that I think that as we explore all of these, we have to make sure we're keeping our community up to date with these technologies. Yeah, it's come, it's so fast, right? So, it's so fast. fast. It's, I think it's even hitting us. We're like, whoa, okay. You know, I, the clinical trials are coming to us like, whoa, okay, what is it? So we even, it's like, okay, how do we explain treatment A to treatment B as an option? You're right, uh, to Bailey. It's just, it is a challenge even for the providers to communicate to our patients. It's a challenge. So th I appreciate that. You're right access and understanding and consenting now now that highway of information is going to require patients and doctors to meet halfway so we're going to have to find each other on that road towards learning about sickle cell disease i just want to say it was you know we were reminded through the at the meeting subtly the nasm report addressing sickle cell disease nasm report the national academies of science blueprint addressing the gaps um, sickle cell disease. I just want to say that hopefully we're not forgetting that that document. That you know we have a long way to go, and I just feel that a lot of the uh, objectives and 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 goals and those pillars that were that were discussed in that document that we don't forget about it. And Dr. Bailey talked about everyone on this on this call talked about it that we really need to provide adequate access education and to all of our families. Um, and I think, I just, I'm afraid that the nation report would just kind of, you know, we, we'll forget about it. So I just wanted to, re, to be reminded of that document that we hopefully we can start addressing some of those gaps of care. And Warriors, if you want more on that episode 20, we did a deep dive into the National Academy of Sciences report on uh, the future of sickle cell. Dr. Saroff, you had something you wanted to say before we closed up here? Yeah, um, just, you know, to, to remember to kind of um, ask your providers to make sure that they're screening and monitoring your kidney function. Uh, remember the kind of preventative measures. And one of the most important weapons that we do have against sickle cell disease is hydroxyurea. And so implementing that early on, 
uh, taking it consistently, there's, there is evidence that it may slow down the, the protein in the urine. It may help your kidney function and protect your kidneys. And so that's another important uh, component of, of helping to preserve your kidneys and keep them healthy. Beautiful, beautiful. And Dr. Saraf, I know that um, we talked predominantly about the kidneys, that there are a number of different organs that we should be thinking about and concerned with. So I would love to connect with you to explore some of that more, um, perhaps with Warrior University or another podcast episode. Absolutely. And I, I definitely love to be a part of that. Yeah. And before we head out, Dr. Z, um, I wanted to ask L as a caregiver with the things that we have discussed today, and you are always so uplifting and encouraging to me. Was there anything that you'd like to, to tell other caregivers who are listening um, and have heard us talk about COVID-19 and end organ damage and this meeting in general? Anything that you use uh, as a way to sort of keep your daughters and yourself uh, uplifted as we navigate through sickle cell disease? Well, I think listening to Dr. Uh, Drew talk about the treatments and that there are different types of gene therapy. I think sometimes you hear the word gene therapy and you think of only the one and you think of, you know, what we heard about Bluebird Bio. And I think it's important to kind of um, be hopeful and know that there are different types of gene ther therapy. There are different types of treatments. And sometimes we have to go to our doctors and say, hey, I heard about you know, this treatment, maybe they're listening to cheat codes or maybe they're listening to something else and you bring it up. Sometimes, you know, as patients or as caregivers, we often wait to be presented information, but we can also go to doctors and say, hey, I heard about this. Can you explain more to me about it? Or is this something that my child or, you know, me, myself as a warrior, is it something that I'm eligible for? If not, what are the eligibility requirements? And I think kind of just kind of developing a way to talk more and express more what's on your mind, because I, I see parents all the time expressing their minds on social media and in, you know, Facebook groups. But I think it's important to go to the um, healthcare professionals that you know that you built a rapport with and have these conversations with them as well. And so sometimes we don't have a lot of time in the doctor's office. And so I think, you know, maybe preparing questions beforehand. Um, I think there's multiple ways that we can do it, but I, I wish that the dialogue with the experts on a personal level was a little bit greater because I think that would instill more hope because parents are looking for different therapies for their children. They want their children to thrive and not just barely survive. And so it is the knowledge that the doctors have that will get us there. So I think this was very encouraging. And I'm glad that, you know, I was able to hear about F, um, FSSDR, FSCDR, FSCDR. <laughs> yeah, you got it, I think it's important. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, with that, guys, again, I want to thank you for all your time and all your expert insights, particularly Elle, Dominique, Dr. Bailey, and of course, my sickle cell colleagues, Dr. Minnie, Dr. Seraf, and Dr. Campbell. Dr. C, thank you as always, guys. I hope we continue to have the hindsight to know where we've been, the foresight to know where we're going, and the insight to know when we've gone too far. I hope, warriors, you keep living well with sickle cell. We'll catch you at the next episode of Cheat Codes.
Sickle Cell Consortium is hosting a Caregiver Summit. The Caregiver Summit is a new annual summit that will focus on helping caregivers come together to bridge empathy, knowledge, and compassion as they provide daily care to sickle cell patients in their lives. The summit will be held on November 12th through the 14th, 2021. The virtual conference will be led by Parent to Parent, Cleverly Changing, and As One Foundation, along with the collaboration of caregivers, sickle cell patients, and others who have expressed a heartfelt need to have their voices heard. We are engaging caregivers beyond conversation, rather in support, decision-making, and implementing standard protocols, and our future will look brighter. Visit www.sicklecellconsortium.org for more information.